Do you think there are any animals that are anti-vaxxers in these zoos? to another episode of The Planet Today. Today is Friday, July 9th, 2021. I am your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer slash co-host slash my best friend since we were born, Nick Janusa. Nick, how are you doing today? Maddie, it is a beautiful day to have a great day. It is Friday and I am ready to rip. Great day to record a podcast. If you are a listener, great day to listen to a podcast. Just just a great Friday. It's a beautiful Friday. The sun is out. It's just gorgeous. The sun is shining. The tank is clean. <laughs> and we are getting out of here. If you're new here, welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or if you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we're really happy to have you as a listener. Before we get started, we wanted to once again read a few reviews from people uh, that they've been leaving for us on Apple Podcasts, just as a thank you for supporting the show. All right, so this first one is from KT Schultz, and she says, slaps. Just finished the first episode, and I need more. Audio sounds great. And love the chemistry between Noose and Matt. Keep it up. Thank you, KT. I hope that you still think our show slaps even after a few more episodes. <laughs> Next one comes from Chris J six six seven, who says, "Informative and extremely engaging. The combination of deep knowledge and charisma is next to impossible to replicate. Truly one of a kind. The only problem is now I want to listen to more." <laughs> Thank you, Chris J six six seven, and trust me, there is much more to come. Um, and we'll be reading more reviews each week, so make sure you leave us a five star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. That way, we can thank you right here on the show. As with every week, we are going to kick the show off with a few quick hits. All right, so this first one comes from Antonia Nori Farzan of the Washington Post, and the title is "Fire on Surface of Gulf of Mexico is Extinguished." but questions about pipeline leak remain. Yeah, this was by far the biggest story of the week, and because of that, we're going to spend a little extra time on it compared to the rest of the quick hits and what we normally do on the show. If you haven't seen the video of it, there was basically this swirling ring of fire surrounded by ocean waves suspended within the ocean in the Gulf of Mexico. If you have seen it, I wonder how many of you, like me, saw it and said, whoa, what movie is that from? (laughs) I, I thought it was... CGI for a sci-fi movie and then I started looking more into it and I was like oh my goodness this is real that's really bad so basically a gas leak was reported near a platform that's used for offshore drilling by Pemex which is Mexico's state-owned oil company and firefighting boats hit the scene soon after Uh, for for this part it was just kind of wild to see how small those boats looked 
because it kind of amplified just how large the Inferno Vortex was. And it took them about five hours to put out, but let's just think of it this way. The Shawshank Redemption is critically acclaimed as one of, if not the best movies of all time. And that has a runtime of two hours and 22 minutes. So you could watch that movie twice in the time that it took to put this fire out. Incredible movie, and I would do that. (laughs) (laughs) I would much rather watch that twice than wait five hours for them to have to put out this fire that was raging. So, yeah. Yeah. Angel Carrizales, who's the head of Mexico's agency for handling pipeline safety, said on Twitter that the incident did not generate any spill. Nick, I don't know about you, but I can't think of any other time that water has been on fire without something else present. Absolutely. This, I saw this last week and I legitimately thought to myself, okay, what has Michael Bay gotten himself into now? Like, what is he filming? What's going on? Because I I just was in complete shock. Like, there has to be more to this story. And I hope that this happening along with the heat wave that we're all experiencing can just kind of result in some real change for the fossil fuel industry or even just uproar from the public to put some pressure on our politicians, either one. Yeah. And I think you're more likely to see the latter of, of people creating more pressure than you will to just have fossil fuel industry change on its own. The, the only other thing that I could think of when I saw this was the Cayuga river, which lit on fire in 1969 in Ohio, where oil caused it to go up in flames. Aside from that, and I think there might be a scene in The Great Gatsby, too, where there's water on fire. I can't think of any instances where water is able to be on fire. So (laughs) to say that this didn't generate any spill, I I think that's kind of just uh, a lie. But just nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll let this play out. So Pemex said that the company would try to figure out the root cause of the issue, but they didn't provide many other details at this time. It's known now that nitrogen was used to put out the fire, and nitrogen is important for plant life and water to grow, but too much of it can be dangerous to water as aquatic plants become too abundant. Another issue with nitrogen is that it can contribute to acid rain when it integrates into the water cycle. So Look, if it took five hours to put this fire out, we're talking about a lot of nitrogen that just got into the water system. The alternative would have been to just let the fire rage on. So putting it out with nitrogen was necessary. But I kind of wanted to talk about how we got here in the first place. And the entire incident has brought up a longstanding debate about whether or not drilling for fossil fuels in the ocean floor is a good idea. You can probably guess where I stand in this debate. But stuff like this can continue to happen if we keep extracting fossil fuels. We spoke about this last week when we were discussing Michael Brune's scene in Before the Flood, but our entire system is based on fossil fuels. It's not like this is the only place in the world where oil is being extracted from the ocean floor or through offshore drilling. And if we expand this conversation to include fracking, it's hard for me to sit here and say that processes like this are worth it when we're constantly seeing ways that it impacts water which, after all, is the most essential element to life on our planet. So these sort of issues go away as we start to phase out fossil fuels in favor of renewables, which is why I think we need to do that even more urgently than we already are. And like Nick brought up, the fossil fuel industry isn't going to have just some groundbreaking, yeah, this isn't really working the way that we intended it to anymore. So I think it's going to take, you know, people making their voices heard. Yeah, absolutely. There's too much money to be made for these guys, for these corporate fat cats. 
We'll just have to see. Okay, um, let's move on to the next one. So this next one comes from BBC UK, and it is titled Climate Change. Planting extra trees will boost rainfall across Europe by Matt McGrath. Yeah, so this was a cool one because I just felt like I learned a lot. It was more of, um, instead of expanding on things that we've already been talking about, I I think this was kind of just new for me. So I wanted to include it this week. And there was a new study in the journal Nature Geoscience that found that converting agricultural land to forest would increase rainfall in Europe by 7.6% in the summers. Not only would the rainfall amount increase, but the rain patterns downwind of all the new plantings would change. Researchers discussed how a loss of rainfall in summer months is one of the greatest dangers caused by climate change, so this could be extremely beneficial in remedying that loss. On the other hand, it's not without its problems because increased rainfall could have negative effects on areas that have already been impacted by climate change through increased rainfall. It's important to remember that climate change impacts different regions in different ways. So while some places get drier, others face more frequent and more intense rainfalls. Something I found particularly interesting is that clouds tend to hang around longer over forested areas. And the rough nature of forests tends to trigger those clouds to produce rain more frequently. After that, the wooded areas encourage evaporation more than flat farmland. So there's basically this cycle that promotes more rainfall in wooded areas. Planting trees has been a focus of many countries as they try to hit climate change mitigation goals. And in the United Kingdom, Prime Minister Boris Johnson set a goal of 30 million new trees to be planted each year by 2025. That is ambitious, Boris, but I hope you can hit it. Um, but yeah, this is a super interesting discovery, and I definitely did not know that clouds react to the landscape below them. So that's really cool. I, I mean, it makes sense. I just never really put two and two together, I guess. Yeah, I never would have thought about you know something as high up as clouds interacting with something as low as trees and you know, it, like you said, it makes sense. I just, this to me, I was like, oh, wow, I never would have thought of that. And then you start to read it. You're like, huh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's get into the next one. So we missed this one last week, but we wanted to include it this week because of how important it is. So Zoe Tidman of The Independent reported, Arctic Circle land temperature reaches 48 degrees Celsius during persistent heat wave in Siberia. Yeah, so I recognize that the majority of our listeners are based in the United States. So for all of our US-based listeners, 48 degrees Celsius is 118 degrees Fahrenheit. The region as a whole saw temperatures around 35 degrees Celsius or 95 degrees Fahrenheit last week, which is much hotter than one would expect in Siberia generally. In recent years, Siberia has been hit with wildfires and rising temperatures, which scientists have said would be effectively impossible without the human-caused climate crisis. Rising temperatures cause permafrost to melt, which causes methane that's trapped in the permafrost to be released into the atmosphere. That kind of exacerbates the issues related to climate change by having more of a greenhouse gas up in the atmosphere. So we're not just talking about climate change causing ice to melt, which makes sea levels rise, and then the story ends right there. We're talking about ice melting sea levels rising, while methane is released into the atmosphere, which makes more ice melt, which makes the sea levels rise more, the cycle continues. And just a quick note on permafrost and methane, the Arctic and Antarctic used to be lush jungles that were kind of comparable to Africa, but as Pangaea broke apart and the continents formed, they got colder. The plant material that you found on them died 
decomposed and has been stored in permafrost ever since. So that's what creates the methane gas that you find in that ice. Methane is a stronger greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, but it only remains in the atmosphere for around a decade, which is much less than CO2. And either way, it's just not good to potentially have all of that methane released. So that's where we're at. Yeah. And this is wild too, because Siberia is such a just notoriously cold place. And the fact that they could have temps reach that high is just insane, especially because the areas in the Arctic Circle generally only have like a one to two month summer. And then they just go right back to like the freezing cold temps pretty much. Yeah, it's, that's a really good point, too. And I'm sure the variability between summer and, you know, the winter temperatures being this drastic with the summers already being as short as they are, that can't be good for the area. Yeah, it's like very hot and cold, literally, quite literally. All right, so let's go ahead and get into our last one here. And it comes from the New York Times, where James Gorman reported, zoos are getting experimental coronavirus vaccines. Yeah, so this one I actually stumbled across on LinkedIn, where our friend and listener of the show, Shane Carmody, shared a post about it. And the Oakland Zoo in California has started to vaccinate some of its animals that are also susceptible to the coronavirus this week, which includes bears, mountain lions, tigers, and ferrets. A veterinary pharmaceutical company known as Zoetis is donating roughly 11,000 doses of the vaccine to about 70 zoos and then also to sanctuaries, universities, and other animal conservation sites across 27 states in the U.S. The Oakland Zoo is the first location to go through this process, and its vice president of veterinary services, Dr. Alex Herman, noted that the zoo has taken precautions to make sure that none of the animals got infected, such as requiring zookeepers maintain a safe distance from the animals they're working with, and also wearing protective equipment. Dr. Herman also said the first two animals to get vaccinated at the zoo were two of their beautiful and elderly tigers. In other zoos, big cats and gorillas have been infected by the coronavirus, so this could be a big step in ensuring that no other animals contract or spread COVID-19. Scientists have been worried that certain species could contract the virus without getting sick, causing it to further mutate. They've also found no evidence that pets can transmit the virus to humans, but dogs and cats can catch the virus from humans. Most of their symptoms are mild, but some cats have had pretty severe symptoms, and I even saw a story about one cat that had to be euthanized in the United Kingdom because of how serious its symptoms were. And one final note, the vaccine is different from the ones used on humans because we have different genetic makeups than animals, so you don't have to worry about these 11,000 doses being taken away from people in need. It's totally separate and, you know, not something you have to worry about. Yeah, we are a vax positive podcast. I don't think that's any surprise to anyone. <laughs> but um, yeah, just like everyone say goodbye to Jim Carrey because uh, he's weird. I love his movies, but it's just weird. Okay. <laughs> Wait, um, Nick, so, before we close that one out, do you think there are any animals that are anti-vaxxers in these zoos? Like, are we talking about bonobos being like, no oh, way? <laughs> wow, that's such a good... <laughs> That's a great question, Matt. I don't know. I think if anything, I would say, I can say for sure that penguins are vaxxers because there's always like so many of them at zoos. Yeah, they uh, they have a big pack, so. <laughs> yeah, anti-vaxxer, I don't know, maybe like a walrus. I could see them being grumpy. <laughs> 
I was going to say maybe something, uh, something seclusive like tigers where they don't come in contact with people all the time or each other all yeah. the time. So they're like, no, no, no. Give that to, uh, the gorillas where there's a lot of them. Yeah, we're good. They're like the, uh, they're like the out of the zoo. <laughs> all right. So we're going to go ahead and close out our quick hits right there. I think that's a pretty good place to stop. And after the break, we will be talking about the New York Times hosted event, Netting Zero. Nick, I did some swimming last weekend and decided to conduct a little experiment while I was doing it. Um, I noticed whenever I got out of the pool and I dried myself off, my towel was drying in the sun, but I started to think what could dry my face and dry itself quicker. And that's when it hit me. Matt, are you referring to the sponsor of this podcast, Vala Alta? I sure am, Nick. I used my handkerchief to dry my face and it was dry and ready to rock and roll before my towel would even think about touching another part of my body. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.com and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A.com and code TPT. Guys, these things have so many uses. Matt was literally just laying in the sun. He was like, wait, I have my Alta on me. I might as well just use it. Go get them, guys. Valaalta.com. Welcome back to the planet today. As I mentioned last week, I had the pleasure of attending an event hosted virtually by the New York Times as part of their Netting Zero series. The event was titled Deconstructing the Built Environment, and it was about how we can build better cities and homes in a carbon-free future. Before we get started, the goal of this series as a whole is to elevate solutions and inform conversations about climate change. You can learn more about the program at NYT climatehub.com. So the moderator of the event was Mark Landler, who's London Bureau Chief of the New York Times. And he stated at the start that we have to accelerate the implementation of solutions that create greener buildings, greener systems, greener structures in our community. He was joined by Nigel Topping, who's a high-level climate champion for COP26, which is the United Nations Climate Change Conference in 2021. It's called COP26 because it's the 26th annual UN Climate Change Conference. Mr. Topping stated that the role of cities is crucial to transform the built environment sector. When we say built environment, we're talking about cities and you know areas where there's already a lot of pre-existing buildings and structures, and we're not talking about a forest here. So if you hear built environment, it sounds just like that, an environment where a lot of things have been built already. Something that Nigel Topping highlighted right from the start is that reducing emissions isn't enough on its own. We need to address climate vulnerability. And he mentioned how there's 1.6 billion people living in urban slums 
which subjects them to a lack of water, extreme heat, you know, all of those sort of problems. And another one that wasn't brought up that I wanted to talk about was um, a concept called food deserts. And it's where food is scarce in that you can go and get fast food easily, but you can't really get healthy, fresh produce. And you see that a lot in in poorer cities and even just poorer neighborhoods within cities. And that's something where as we move forward, that should be right on the forefront of building more sustainable cities along with addressing extreme heat and a lack of water. Yeah, I can think of my college town, actually. It was literally just a row of like Burger King, Wendy's, McDonald's, Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, like literally any fast food. It was like a fast food haven. And then you just like, you maybe had like a couple grocery stores. I don't know. It was terrible. Yeah. And I'm sure, I'm sure you're not alone in that a lot of college towns are probably like that because everyone's kind of so transient. Like you have a lot of people that are showing up for a couple of years and then moving out. So you're not talking about your people who have graduated and are looking to go to get better produce. I mean, I remember right. when I was in college, my mom used to get so annoyed with me because she's like, where are you getting your vegetables from? Like, I don't know, the local grocery store. It's like, are they organic? Are they healthy? I'm like, I don't know, they're vegetables. <laughs> yeah. like, it's not really a Mom, priority when you're, yeah, it's, yeah, they are healthy enough because I'm eating peppers. But no, it's like, it's not a priority for you when you're scraping by on, you know, $9 an hour job, just trying to put groceries on your table. Yeah, exactly. While being a full-time student. So I'm sure a lot of college towns kind of go through that same thing. Yeah. And then the the next thing Nigel Topping brought up was how we can convert our entire existing built environment ecosystem to align with the idea of net zero by 2050. As a reminder, we're talking about no new carbon emissions without them being offset. So you can produce carbon, but we're taking away more carbon than we're producing or, you know, as much by the year 2050. And after he left, we were joined by the first panel of experts to talk about climate change versus the built environment. They were each asked how their industry can lead the charge to get to net zero by 2050. The first was Jillian Charlesworth, who is the CEO of Bree, which is involved in real estate and development. She said that for every $1 spent on energy efficient measures, $37 was spent on conventional building. And that jumped out at me right away because I kind of live in this idealistic world where I'm like, we're so close to making renewable energy, you know, the number one supplier of our energy system. And then we're so close to making sustainable buildings that are fully carbon neutral and we don't have to worry about them moving forward. And then you're hit with that where you're like, Wow. So for every $38 that's spent on building, only one of those is for energy efficient measures. She said that we need to step up the materials that we use for building and the way that those buildings are constructed. That way, more of that $38 pie can go towards energy efficient measures. Wow. So the second person on the board was Pierre-André de Chandelier, who's the CEO and chairman of Saint-Gobain. He said that they need to speed up renovation because existing buildings are not energy efficient the way that new buildings are. And when you look at a lot of cities, there's already a lot of buildings there. So what he wanted to bring up was that 
in the US and in the developed world to get energy efficient buildings, it would almost be easier to take them down and build them from scratch. But easier and realistic don't always mean the same thing. So in this case, that's why he wanted to say renovation needs to be the key here. That way we can get those existing buildings caught up. Now, what is the cost similar? Is that why he's saying that too? Like, is the cost similar too? He didn't bring that up, but that would be a really good question. Um, he was more just focusing on it's challenging and it does cost a lot to renovate existing buildings and you know, take out the old heating system, take out all the insulation on that you know, 13 story skyscraper in downtown Manhattan. Right. It's harder to take that and make it energy efficient than it would be to build something from the ground up where, you know, every single step along the way you have efficiency and sustainability in mind. Gotcha. Gotcha. In the developing world, Pierre Andre said that it's the exact opposite where new buildings are the issue because you have this opportunity to create this sustainable beacon where everything is just from the ground up, we're looking at sustainable infrastructure and energy efficient systems, and everything has that in mind the whole way through. We just need to make sure that that's affordable, doable, and gets done. So the final thing that he brought up was this renovation idea and how industrializing renovation and having the right regulation from new builds are both needed just in separate parts of the world. So it's not this catch-all where you can say, Everything needs to be energy efficient from the ground up because, like we said, that impacts developing cities and cities that are expanding. But there's not that many new buildings that are going up in a place like Los Angeles or New York. But if we were to take the other approach and say, hey, renovation is the key in, in this industrialization process. Well, then that kind of leaves the developing world to say, OK, we're going to build our cities and we'll renovate later. So there's not one easy answer. And it's kind of a combination of where are you? What can you afford? How can we get everything else that you can't afford to be incorporated in here? And there's just a big wide net of solutions here that have to be applied on a case by case basis. The final person on that first panel was Margaret Chinu Anadu, who's a partner and global head of sustainability and impact of Goldman Sachs. And working in Goldman Sachs, she works with finance. And she said that investors need to seek out the opportunity to make the biggest changes. Um, unfortunately, the challenges faced don't affect all populations equally. So in finance, they need to focus on underserved communities. And I thought a really interesting question that that panel was asked about was, how are they bringing shareholders and other stakeholders along on this green transition and net zero commissions? Do they get pushback or are people mostly supportive of it? And Margaret started off by saying that her stakeholders are bringing them along. Working in finance, everyone is one of their customers because everyone relies on the system where you need money. So she said that she's finding that people want to be in lead buildings and they want to know that their building is a part of the fight against climate change. If you're unaware, LEED stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, and they certify green buildings, green appliances. Um, there's a lot of refrigerators and dishwashers and washer-dryer systems that are LEED certified. So it's not just buildings, um, it's the stuff within them too. Hmm. 
She also said that stakeholders are now demanding sustainability from them because it's more of an approach that people are looking for in their future investments. And whether that's they have money on their mind first and foremost, and they see that the market is transitioning forward with a green future, or if they just consider themselves environmentalists and they care and they want to know that their money is personally contributing, it's all the same result where stakeholders just want things to be greener. And then Pierre-André kind of followed up and said about the same. And it was interesting to me that they work in different industries, but they are seeing the same sort of pushes from their customers. And then finally, Jillian said that investors are pushing harder now than they have in the past. A final thing that that panel brought up was actually brought up by by Margaret, where she explored the U.S. racial wealth gap for her One Million Black Women initiative. And she said that renovation and energy efficiency will drive down the cost for individuals, especially for individuals in low-income communities. For them, electricity and heat can be two of the most expensive things that they deal with. So she kind of just brought up something we've been hinting at for weeks now with, with equity being on the forefront of any environmental measure that we have to take moving forward. And I was really interested in learning more about the One Million Black Women Initiative um, and how that relates to both energy efficiency, environmentalism, and racial inequality. So if you're curious, that's something you should definitely check out on Google. Yeah, I definitely will go check that out. Yeah, and, and we can even link that in the show notes. That way people can take a look pretty easily just by scrolling down on your podcast app and clicking below. Hell yeah. After that panel closed, we were joined by Her Excellency Elizabeth Thompson, who's the ambassador extraordinary and plenipotentiary of Barbados with responsibility for climate change, small developing states, and law of the sea. I had not heard of the phrase plenipotentiary before, and it just means that Elizabeth Thompson is entrusted with the full power to act independently on behalf of her government. In other words, She's a really big deal, and it was awesome to hear from her. <laughs> her focus is on how small island states like her own can withstand the threats of climate change because they are the ones who are the most vulnerable. She also focuses on ensuring buildings are hurricane-proof and can withstand high winds as storms become more frequent and more devastating due to climate change. She brought up the Roofs to Reefs initiative, which has a goal of protecting both the seabed and built structures on the lands. Roofs to Reefs is a comprehensive, integrated policy solution that protects both the natural environment and the built environment, which I thought was really interesting because you can't really focus on one without focusing on the other if you want this total sweeping plan that's actually going to work. Right. And that's like cohesive, too. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, if we focus on the seabed and we're not focusing on the environment on land, including in our cities, a hurricane's just going to wipe that out. Yeah. Exactly. On the other hand, if we focus just on those cities and not the seabeds, the hurricanes are going to get worse. So like you can't fix one without the other. Right. And maybe you could get into more on why these small island states are in such a bad position with climate change. Yeah. Great question. And uh, this isn't really something that they brought up there, but something that I, I remember learning about in grad school. And the thing with small island nations is that a lot of them being islands they're more susceptible to sea level rise. So they're going to be the first places that are hit as the oceans start to rise more. Right. Another thing that's important to consider is that they don't have, because they don't have as much land, 
they don't have this abundance of resources to create sustainable fuel. So a lot of them are not only using coal or using natural gas, they have to import it from other countries. So you're talking about, you know, creating carbon emissions from the fuel you're using, but also creating carbon emissions by needing to transport it in. So they aren't creating as much emissions as some of the larger industrial nations, but they're hit first and they need to rely on those other nations to actually give them their fuel in a way like they're, they're paying for it, but it's kind of open to the market as to say, you know, are they more likely to buy more solar panels, wind turbines, or are they more likely to import coal because it's cheaper and it's easy for other countries to export? So, right. It's a lot and it kind of just comes down to size and scale of the islands and the industries. Right. Okay. So she was asked, what are the best ways to educate her citizens about climate change since it's kind of an abstract idea? And I found her answer to be extremely profound. She said that in the Caribbean, it's not an abstract idea. Everyone sees firsthand the impacts and they notice their shorelines becoming smaller as the sea level starts to rise. And she compared it to the U.S. where climate change isn't a debate to them because they live through it daily. It's not like the U.S. where when Hurricane Katrina hit the U.S., outside of the Gulf Coast, many Americans could kind of go on with their day-to-day life as if nothing was different. I mean, you could go and put on the news and watch and see, gee, there's sure a lot of people in my country who are being affected by this. But then you'd go outside if you live in Oregon and, you know, you don't see that impact firsthand. With smaller island states, if a hurricane hits, the whole island's going to feel it and the whole island is going to see it. So as climate change makes storms worse and more frequent, they're going to continue to get hit hard. After Her Excellency Elizabeth Thompson left... The next panel joined the discussion, and it was composed of Sheila Patel, who's the founder and director of the Society for the Promotion of Area Resource Centers, Christina Gamboa, who is the CEO of the World Green Building Council, and Tony Griffin, who's the professor and founder of Urban American City. Sheila Patel said to ask poorer people in communities what needs to be invested in if leaders are concerned about the most effective ways to create resilient communities. Now, she said that because they're the ones who actually feel it. I mean, you can go and live in a city and in your neighborhood, things are fine when it gets hot out because your building has air conditioning and it's shaded by trees. But then you go, you know, two miles away in the same city and there's less parks and the buildings have worse insulation or worse windows that don't reflect heat as much and they're older and they don't have central air. And some people can't afford air conditionings. And those are the people that you need to ask what needs to be done because they're facing it a lot more than people who can be comfortable when it's really hot out. Yeah, it has like compounding effects. Yeah, and the next thing that she brought up was to create resilient communities, we need to build resilient homes. And that's not just, you know, your house at the edge of a road in a cul-de-sac. It's, you know, your apartment buildings and what everyone considers a home is different. So we need to focus on homes as an abstract. Wherever you live, your home needs to be resilient. And that will in turn create resilient communities. 
More often than not, poorer communities are impacted greatest by environmental damages, and the people in those communities will be able to tell you what happens during intense storms or energy blackouts. And next, Tony Griffin furthered this point by stating that cities can transition to net zero without leaving anyone behind by focusing on those who are most vulnerable. The pandemic taught us that those are our essential workers who need to be prioritized. And to me, it really seemed like the main focus of this seminar was creating genuine equity in communities if we want to move forward with a sustainable future. Yeah, I think that's a really good approach because the essential workers basically carried us through the pandemic. Like, think about all the grocery store employees, the healthcare workers, like, they literally, some of them haven't taken a day off since, so they carried us through this pandemic. Yeah, and that's something that's important to bring up too because when we look back at the last year, they couldn't work from home. You know, like when things were at their worst, I've mentioned this many a time on this show now, but I live in New York City. And when New York City was considered the epicenter of the coronavirus in the United States, grocery stores stayed open. And those people who needed to work to put food on their own table and to pay for their rent, they couldn't just say, yeah, I'm going to take my laptop and work from home for the next couple months or the next year. Those are the people that carried us, like Nick said, and moving forward, we need to help carry them as we create a better city as a whole. And that's not just New York. That's the city in in terms of the like every city. Yeah. And then afterwards, all six members of both panels joined to talk about the focus on underserved populations and collaborations between both the public and the private sector to actually get stuff done. Christina Gamboa, who joined from that second panel, closed the panel portion of the seminar with something that I found particularly worth noting for our show. The need for high quality solutions that are affordable so that others don't get left behind. She said, what's difficult is worth it. And she also said we need to do away with pollution to create better communities. And in this case, carbon is pollution. Afterwards, Whitney Richardson of the New York Times was joined by Thomas Heatherwick, who's the designer and founder of Heatherwick Studios. And she was also joined by Bill Wasik, who's the deputy editor of the New York Times magazine. New Yorkers might know Thomas Heatherwick as the architect who designed Little Island in the Hudson River Park. Heatherwick brought up how his studio practices a phrase called biophilia, which involves incorporating natural world elements into his buildings. So he'll basically find ways to incorporate sustainability and natural elements like trees and green walls and green roofs into his designs. So you're not just looking at a glass building with concrete as the frame. You're seeing plants rising up the side. And if you haven't seen Little Island, it's a bunch of cement pillars with just grass all over the top of it. And it's it's a very interesting look. Uh, I find it pretty cool. It's not open to the public yet, but it looks like it's got a ton of green space right on the water, which is really interesting to see. Yeah, it looks sick. And it it's like a, looks like it's almost like a little amphitheater too, kind of. Yeah, with the way that it's kind of, there's different elevations. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. And actually, it's funny you bring that up because he talked about how because of Hurricane Sandy and how that impacted New York, he actually had to redesign the entire thing to make it higher. 
So whatever those elevations are that we're looking at, those were different than they were God, probably, what was Sandy, 10 years ago at this point? Yeah, probably. Maybe a little less. I remember we were in high school. Um, yeah, maybe. So we're probably looking at eight to eight to nine years ago. So he had to redesign this entire thing because the pier looked different because the water level had changed. And he saw that, you know, with rising water due to a hurricane, he wanted Little Island to be able to withstand that. Yeah, Sandy was a rough time. I remember we had no power for at least a week. Yeah, I remember the craziest part for me was I grew up next to an elementary school. So I kept thinking, oh, you know, we're going to get power back soon because they need to get the school up and running. And I mean, literally the next house over from a school and we didn't get power back for a week and a half. And I remember going like five days without showering. And then I forget if I showered at a friend's house first or my cousin's house first, but my cousin... And another one of my friends got power back relatively soon after. And oh my goodness, I just remember the feeling of, of showering after a couple of days without it was euphoric. <laughs> <laughs> it's heavenly, especially even like after camping, you just like, I need to be washed. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. You're like, this is the best feeling in the world. And then all of a sudden you actually go in and shower and you're like, okay, no, this is the best <laughs> feeling in the world. <laughs> So um, to, to go back to what Heatherwick was talking about, the next thing he brought up was an electric car that he is designing. And the goal is not only does the car not pollute, but it cleans the air as it drives. And he said he's interested in transportation as a whole because cars are not the only way to get people together. So while he's focused on this electric car for one part of his design, he's also just looking into transportation. That would put Elon Musk on the hot seat Big time. Uh, the car that cleans. It's like the shrimp of the sea. It's like a autonomous uh, garbage truck where it's it's picking up your garbage on the side of the road and also cleaning out all the pollution from the air. Yeah, that's sweet. So his focus with this electric car is, are you just going to make a styling improvement or can every little change be a step towards the best that things can be? Electric vehicles, when they drive, still have particles from brake pads that go up in the air every time they break and some forms of pollution that are also generated just through the driving process. So he wanted to change the focus of cars from I'm not doing bad by driving an electric vehicle and make it more of a, how do we do good by driving an electric vehicle? When he was designing this EV, he also designed it with a dining space in the back And the goal was to bring people together so that your car isn't only used for travel. He said the reason for this design was that we tend to focus on making good things better, which is difficult. And I don't want to downplay that. Like it's tough to take something that works and find a way to make it work better. But he said that it's more difficult to make the worst things better and the worst places in society better. And for this, traditional cars are one of them where you just hop in and then you drive from point A to point B And then you park and then you go inside. And he wanted to find something where you could drive to the top of this scenic overlook. And in the back, there's a four person dining room table where you could sit and have dinner over this beautiful vista. And it's an interesting idea. I don't know. uh, I don't know how it's going to work, to be honest. I'm curious to see how it plays out because I like the idea. I just need to see it first, I guess. Yeah. In theory, this sounds incredible. Like, I'm thinking specifically, too, about um, let's say you're on a road trip with your buddies and you're just having a five-course meal in the back 
while you're just going like literally 2,500 <laughs> miles away from home, you're just like, all right, guys, what's next? Just pack a bunch of food, bunch of beers. I don't know. Sounds like a great time. I don't think beers would work just because you are still in a car, but yeah. Oh, shoot. Yeah. I guess <laughs> someone's got to drive. Wait, so but someone has to drive, right? That's... Yeah. Well, it's not an autonomous car. I don't know. Uh, I don't think it was autonomous, but no, I mean, like you can, I'm thinking instead of packing a picnic basket and parking and then going out and eating in the Vista, you just park and you eat in the car. Um, but no, it's like, it's a, it's a cool concept and I'm curious to see, you know, does this work the way that he wants it to? And will, this is, this is ultimately the, the main question will people want something like this? And I don't know the answer to that. I don't think we can know the answer to that until we actually see it, but no, it's a, it's a cool idea. Yeah. I love it. So overall, I would say the seminar was really interesting and I really just tried to touch upon a few of the main hits because, you know, I I was lucky enough to attend the seminar and I didn't want to discredit anyone else's work by just listing off everything they talked about. Um, so if any of these, struck something for you. We're like, wow, that's cool. I'd love to look it up. Take, take a look at some of their work and, you know, you can Google the names of the people on the panels or you can Google Thomas Heatherwick's car or whatever it is that you'd like to know about. You can definitely find that just by Googling their names. And if you like the idea of this seminar and you'd like to spend an hour and a half going more in depth on some of these topics, you can figure out the information as to where to sign up for the next one at nytclimatehub.com. This was part eight of their series. I don't know how long it's planning on running, but there's definitely a part nine coming up. So definitely take a look. Yeah, go check it out, guys. NYTClimateHub.com. And Nick, I think that's a pretty good place to close this week's episode. Next week, Nick and I will be back in the studio with another episode. And side note for you, Nick, I just got four paintings. Uh, it's a print set from one of my favorite artists. Shout out Gregory Euclide. And those will be hung up behind me moving forward when we record. So been in the works for a little bit. Finally got them, got the frames. It's going to be a nice little scenic view if we ever move to a video production of this podcast. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, I'm going to have to get like a sweet background setup. Maybe I'll just do like one of the lame Zoom like beach settings. Like just like, (laughs) yeah, I'm at the beach recording this podcast like a dumbass. The one that very clearly, like you could see every time you move and you're like, nope, that's fake. And then you get the same, the same person, the zoom call. It's like, Hey everyone, it's me from the beach. <laughs> oh, okay. We'll have like a, we need to have like a boomer segment on the show, but okay. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> that's all right. Until that next episode drops, you can keep up with us both on Twitter and Instagram at planet today pod, or you can email us at planet today pod at gmail.com. We'd really appreciate if you could share the show with a friend or two or whoever else you think would be interested. Just tell someone that you think would like it, or you could share our posts on social medias whenever we drop something or you know a new episode's out. Aside from that, if you have questions you want answered, feel free to send them in. If you see a story you want us to cover, you could send that too. And if you have a guest you'd like for us to have on, let us know and we will try to reach out. We have a couple big guests in the works and uh, you know excited to see where the next few weeks and months of the show lead. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, even if you listen on Google or Spotify or Stitcher. The reviews on Apple really help the show grow the most. If you don't feel like the show is worth five stars, you can let us know by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a suggestion as the review. So we can take constructive criticism, just 
four and three star reviews don't really help the way that you think they do, please just give us that five star rating and it'll help out a lot. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norton. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. We are produced and co-hosted by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who does the music for each and every single show. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? Matty, you can find me at soundcloud.com slash budlincape. That is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Awesome. Definitely check out Nick's music. Guarantee you will like it if you have ears that are working right now because he makes some <laughs> awesome tunes. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Everyone have a great weekend and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace. Peace.